Welcome to We Got Balls, real, raw, masculine sex talk with Chris Inman and Scott Cohn. Chris and Scott both work with men who want to leave their unwanted sexual struggles in the past. They are willing to do whatever it takes to help men get curious about what drives their compulsive sexual behavior. With that said, here we go. Hey guys, welcome back to We Got Balls. And today we have a great episode, Scott. We're going to talk about your mama. We're going to talk about mommy issues. And the thing I want you guys to think about is, you know, maybe if you like boobs or, or big boobs, could that be pointing back to your mom? We'll get to that later. Mm, in episode, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've got a story about my mom. Uh, it's not about boobs. Thank goodness. Um, I don't really want to talk about my mom's boobs. I hope you don't either. But that's, <laughs> that's, that's just no, where I, we are. I do not, for the record. <laughs> right. Thank goodness. Um, you know, my, my mom... Uh, had a really difficult childhood and I was sitting with my dad one time, you know, we were just talking about what life was like for me when I was a kid. Cause you knew you really can't get good uh, feedback from your own life through your memory alone. You need other people to help you and family members can sometimes help you get there. My dad and one of the, the kindnesses of our conversation that we have had uh, said, you know, your mom really couldn't care for you, Chris. I mean, she just, she just didn't have the capacity. You know, her mother was gone a lot when she was young. She didn't get, get a lot of nurture and care, and she was just struggling to make it herself through every day. So she kept you clean. She kept you fed. Uh, she kept you safe, but there wasn't a lot of room for cuddling. There wasn't a lot of room for um, needing, um, for providing uh, physical touch and attunement. And so I've always wondered, you know, why is there this nagging sense of anxiety and, and loneliness inside of me? It just, it feels like that when I want to address issues around my mom, I can't go there. I'm, I'm from the Southern United States and there is a taboo in our culture. You don't talk about your mama. That's just like, I mean, it's hardcore. We're the, we're the king of the yo mama jokes because we know that's going to get somebody fired up. <laughs> it's it's going to gonna be a fight. So then I got to go back and figure out in my own story, what, what's going on in my story? What, what are the dynamics that I wrestle with that I didn't receive from my mom that I'm really missing out on today? So this is really kind of the, the companion piece to the, the daddy issues, the mommy issues. And really, when you look at it, there's only two issues we can really have fundamentally. We either have mommy issues or daddy issues or both. And some of us have both of them. Um, some of us lean more to one than the other. But I, I like how you kind of grounded this in the what happened to your mom. And I think that the kind of the kind and compassionate attitude is as we're seeking to name how we were harmed, we also can look at, well, how was my mother harmed too? And so I have a very similar experience with my mom where my first 21 years, 25 years probably of my relationship with my mom was what I would characterize as kind of hostile dependent in the sense that my first memory is eating a, a jar of green beans being fed. I was one years old by my mom. She was 19 at the time uh, that she had me and she came from a home where her dad was an alcoholic. And as I've kind of learned more of her story. It wasn't just dad would come home drunk. It was, I had to go to the bar as an eight-year-old and get my dad out of the bar when he was drunk because 
he would only come home for me. What does that say? That's, that's how the story was told. So there's a little triangulation going on there between my mother and her, her dad. Um, her mom was not a very praising, you know, affirming person to her growing up. She was nine years apart from her sisters. So there's something going on there about wanted, unwanted, you know, mistake. And so she goes away to college, meets my dad, and I come along. And I don't think I was part of the plan. And so what does that do to a young girl who's trying to escape kind of a, a harmful home and start a new life, one that she imagines not being burdened with the care of other responsibilities that she had as a child. Going into a bar to get your dad when you're eight years old makes you the parent. And it makes her want to escape and have a life of her own because she's never been allowed to be a child. And so when a child comes along and now she's responsible again for caring for somebody else, it's, uh, it's something that makes, it's, it's overwhelming and it makes her angry. And so this first memory of eating the green beans, I spit them out because they're bitter, which is a natural response to something that's bitter. And she slaps my face. And I, I remember as I'm telling the story, just this punch in the gut feeling of what's wrong with me? Like, why do you hate me? That's what I'm telling myself about that experience now. And I think most of my growing up time was like that with my mother is always looking to see, was I going to be slapped? Was I going to be criticized? Was I going to be, you know, rejected and trying to please somebody that I could not please. So what does that do? And then there are various ways, right, that this story well, can go. With well, people. let's, let's, let's back up because I think what, what I'm feeling as you're talking, Scott, is there's a really fundamental aspect, a really fundamental differenti differentiation that needs to be made here between moms and dads. We talked, you know, in our previous episode on dads, we talked about, and if you haven't listened to that one, go back and check it out. We need dads to help us become men. We need dads to give us some individuation, to give us some identity, to help us step into our full self. But what we're talking about with moms is really before that. It's this fundamental human development that every child needs, which is this feeling to be, as we've used often, seen, soothed, safe, and secure. And when mom cannot get, feel that in her own body, when she can't hold that herself, what you just talked about is what happens, whether it's neglect or anger or, um, uh, you know, being, um, what's the word I want to use? Trauma, trauma is both an aspect of either abuse or neglect. It's one of the two. So either one of those things, the, the aspect of it's, it's getting baked into my body. I mean, how old were you sitting in that high chair when you got slapped? One, Scott. one. So I, you were an infant. You yeah. were you were still learning how to just be on this earth. Not, I mean, barely even walking, probably. And so there you are at that very formative age. You have this experience. And again, if you, uh, we'll put this uh, in the show notes. If you guys have not uh, checked out the still face experiment on YouTube that a researcher did about what it means for a mother to not be attuned to a child just in a few minutes, much less 
abusive or neglectful for longer periods of time, it's really important that you check that out because these are the building blocks of what makes us people and what makes us uh, stable. Yeah. So in that particular experience with me, what it's doing is sending a shock into my autonomic nervous system and it's teaching me moms aren't safe. And then you can see how if I get that repeated over and over and over again, it goes from moms aren't safe to women aren't safe. Because I can only bond with a woman in relationship to my closest, most intimate female relationship. And that always starts out being your mom, unless you're given up for adoption. Couldn't it go the other direction? If, if women aren't safe, or maybe... I have to find a woman who is safe. I'm on the hunt as a man to find that magical woman who's going to be the fix for me. Yeah, it definitely could go either direction, but it's not going to stay this. It's not going to be a secure relationship, right? We're talking about, we're talking about how does the human being develop in terms of our ability to uh, manage our intense bodily sensations and emotions that's called affect and Mm -hmm. how then that, comes into creating our sense of being attached or bonded to others. And all of that leads to a either secure or insecure sense of who I am, my own identity. So it works in that flow. The necessary first ingredient is attunement. Do I have a mother who's reading my emotions non-verbally, my non-verbal mm. expressions of what's going on in me, in my face, in my tone of voice, in my body expressions, even as a three-month-old. So I've been reading a lot about kind of developmental neurobiology and the mother-child dyadic relationship lately, and it's really fascinating. You said what? Mother-child what relationship? A dyad dyad is just simply two. It it means... Okay, okay, thank you for helping me. A relational bond of two, right? The relationship between mother and child of two. And so all human relationships are dyads in one sense. Mm -hmm. You and I are friends. That's a dyad. My wife and I have a relationship as husband and wife. That's a dyad. My children and I are parent and child. That's a dyad. So we relate to others, not just in groups, but the fundamental unit of relationship in human experience is this dyadic, this back and forth flow between uh, primarily my right brain and your right brain, which makes us feel felt, connected, seen, heard. You know, that's where the bond is, not in our cognitive left brain. Let's be analytical and talk about this. We fundamentally relate to one another at this intuitive, unconscious level. And it starts in our relationship with our mother. And it starts with nonverbal expressions of connection. So when, when, they t- when neurobiologists talk about love, they're talking about it in actually two aspects. There's this quiet, connected, soothing love where the mother is holding the baby. She's stroking the baby. There's this gaze. There's cooing and smiling. Three months of age is when this starts to really develop. Even earlier, babies are sensitive to this. And so this is creating the sense of, I can be with you. Mm. And the mother's gaze is being interpreted by the baby as, I like you. I'm so happy to see you. Oh, you're beautiful. I want you to be like me. And- that's, a, that's a baseline attunement and acceptance and uh, what we would call uh, neurobiological interpersonal connection. Yep. And um, it's this yeah. quiet, restful love. So we would yeah. call that tender, right? Mm. 
Yes. But it makes me feel safe and it makes me feel connected. But then as the baby develops and as the relationship between the mom and the baby starts to evolve, there comes this aspect of play, which we talked about in the daddy issue. The daddies play a lot with kids. They tickle, they wrestle, they play monster, they play horsey, all of that. They put the kid on the refrigerator and he jumps off and they catch him. That's an important role that dads have in teaching children to use their bodies to explore the world. But the mother is using her body with the baby's body to bring excitement into that element of love. So there is a playfulness, peekaboo, you know, right? And, and the baby is being trained to be excited and connected and playful and creative as well as having these times of rest. And so we call that happy, just simple emotion, happy and tender. That's that regulated blue zone of arousal. And then what happens is when a baby gets angry or afraid or feels sadness or shame, the mother regulates the, is reading that on the baby. That's what attunement is. I see what you're feeling. I can feel what you're feeling. And she uses her nonverbal expressions and her connection emotionally with the baby to bring the baby back up to that state of happy and tender. And that's teaching the nervous system and the sense of self, oh, I can be secure and loved and connected here. Or let's go one step further. Maybe, especially for babies that are being breastfed, one way to soothe you is to suckle you, to put you on my breast and to feed you. And so not only am I taking my body to comfort you, I'm taking my body and using my body to fill your body and give you a sense of peace and, and fullness and warmth inside of you so there's you know there you go guys if you're looking for boobs maybe you're looking for a little tenderness and love and connection from another human being you know and it's emblematic of that in the boobs that you're looking at that's what you feel in your body when you see those yeah and uh that may seem creepy to you but there's no other way to develop the human being other than by modeling that through a mother and a father relationship and your sexuality then develops out of this because you learn how to be with other people, both in a play, in a state of restfulness and connection, mm -hmm. as well as mm -hmm. playful excitement. And that scope, that range of things that occurs in there is what we bring into our sexuality and what we bring mm -hmm. into our sexual and intimate relationship with, with a partner. So that's how it's supposed to work. So what mm -hmm. happens when that gets interrupted by mom being depressed, mom having postpartum depression, mom coming from a lot of trauma in her family system. Oh, um, I know. I know. Well, this is what happens. <laughs> Tell me more. What happens, what happens is, uh, you know, my childhood, which is I played alone a lot. I had to figure things out on my own a lot. I, I was taken care of it with my physical needs. And I, I hear this from a lot of guys. They say, you know, my parents were physically present but not emotionally. So when a lot of times I hear that with dads, but sometimes in my case with moms as well. And so, um, you know, the big break in my story was nine years old when my parents got divorced, my mom went into a spiral and we went to daycare for the first time. We, I had to learn to cook my own meals. I had to um, wash my clothes at nine years old because my mom couldn't function. So here I am over functioning as a, a boy who's still trying to figure out friendships and life and 
So this, this gnawing feeling of anxiety and, and loneliness starts to build in my body. Frankly, it probably was already there. Well, so, so yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you there. So here's, here's the real important issue about this. You're telling me a story of what you felt like in your body at nine years old. Yeah. But your mother didn't just start being that way at nine years no. old. It was birth. Right? It was birth. Right. So, but yeah. you don't remember the first four years of your life because unless you have an emotionally intense experience like I did, being slapped in the face was very fearful and very shaming at one years of age. So I do remember that and it's a real memory. But most of us don't have narrative memory before we're five or six because we don't have language capability that's broad enough and deep enough to help us make sense out of what's happened to us. We can't we cannot describe our inner experience unless we have language and unless we have words and unless we can name things. So before six, you can't do that. So that's why most people don't have memories before six. But here's what we can do. We can make deductions about what you just said about what you do remember at nine and know that that didn't just start then. Well, I'll give you an amplifying factor. You know how I remembered that I was doing the dishes and doing the uh, and, and washing my clothes and cooking my food at nine, my mother reminded me of it. And she said it in a joke. She was laughing at the fact that I was doing that at nine. Now, this is my mom. I love my mom. My mom's still very broken. I had to kind of end that conversation because it was triggering me when she said it. So in my 45-year-old brain, as I'm looking back into that story, what I can say is this is a woman who's been unaware of my need for attunement and nurture and care for as long as I've been alive. She doesn't have the capacity right. to see the need. So you came into the world looking for somebody looking for you. The first relationship you're going to try to find that in is your mother. And in your lived experience, in your body, you did not experience that. So now what you have is a gaping vacuum where it should have been filled with both quiet love and excitable love. And it leaves you with this persistent sense of loneliness and an anxiousness that that loneliness is never going to be filled. Correct? Yep. Correct. And that, you nailed it. that wasn't there at nine. That was there at three months and one year sure. and two years. Yep. And so when your right brain is forming at the fastest growth rate of any kind of developmental experience we have in our bodies in that one to two year period, you're not getting the attunement and the care and the comfort you need. So that sets you up and you made a great point. And that is, how do I know what my early developmental experience is like if I didn't, if I don't have any narrative memory of it, you know, in two ways, one is by the stories you do remember. When did you feel disconnected from her? How did that happen? What were you doing? So you start to make deductions from what you do remember. And the second thing is when something comes up today that triggers you and you have this intense emotional response, there seems to be no direct correlation to that and what just happened. Then you need to be curious about, hmm, what part of my story is this really triggering? And you know, after our daughter died, I'll give you an example of this. After our daughter died, I was laying in bed. I was grieving one night and my wife reaches up to stroke my face and I flinch. I didn't think about that. I just did it automatically because a woman reaching for my face means I'm about to be slapped. 
Because that wasn't the only experience. I had a second grade senile teacher who would pull me to the front of the class, ask me to solve math problems and slap my face in front of everybody. So now, not only have I had the shock, shameful experience with my mother early, early in my development, now I'm being humiliated by a woman in front of my peers. So that's building on top of that layer of rejection and shame and sense of abandonment just like in your story, you're doing the you're doing all of these motherly kind of caring activities for yourself at nine, and you've always had to. Yes. So so then let's take this and project it onto where do we go with our sexuality out of this harm or deprivation? Well. I mean, you can go a number of ways. For me, the way that I went was I, I started looking for another woman. I started looking for someone else to nurture and care for me. And the, the initial desire for that was um, was looking at naked women, is that there was a self-soothing in just that pursuit of a picture of, an, of a woman who didn't have any clothes on that felt both nurturing and arousing and playful to me. And I would make a game of it. I would go into the bookstores. And back then they would have photography sections in bookstores and you could see erotic photography or boudoir photography. And I would go sneak my way over to that and look around both ways and see who's watching me and then try to pick a look and see what it felt like in my body to have that experience of, um, for just a moment, someone seeing me. Or that's what it felt like as I'm looking at those pictures. Yeah. So that's, that's one story. Out of neglect, then, you go looking for what you never got in a fantasy, right? right? Yes. And, yes. And then for me, out of harm, I avoid what I was getting by going in the opposite direction and trying to seek comfort and care from men. Because women are not a source of comfort and care they're a source of harm. Now, that's not entirely true in my story because my grandmother was a source of connection and care, but she wasn't there enough that I can easily recall that sense of being connected to her and her comfort. And so mainly I'm focused on the threats instead of the good that I did get. And that's part of how I've worked in, in kind of changing the meaning of my narrative is gone back and wait went, uh, oh, wait a second, I did have a grandmother who cared for me. I did have good experiences with women. So they're not always harmful. And in my relationship with my wife, I've had a very caring, loving, kind experience as well. But my tendency was to transfer my relationship with my mother onto my intimate relationship with my wife, because I'm generalizing out of the intimacy, this is dangerous. I'm going to project that onto somebody else. And that's where we develop kind of our sexual struggles, or what our alternative is for connection, care and comfort. Um, the other way you could do this is, if you're a child who is responsible for managing your mother's emotions, which is another way to be harmed, you have to be the parent to the child, that can feel very suffocating. And so you start to look for um, freedom from that in the fantasy of somebody that's going to come along and care for you. She's she or he or whatever is going to be the source of your tenderness and your excitable love that you never got in your relationship with your mom. So. 
exhausting, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, just to think about it. I mean, just to just 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 to think about all this um, all this development and all this nurture and all this tenderness that many of us missed out on, and it and it just feels so lonely and weak. And in and we keep we keep using this phrase in my body, and I, I just want to call attention to it because. You're probably listening to this, watching this, because you you want more information. And guys, I just got some bad news. The information isn't really going to help. Scott said it earlier. He said, many of us have experienced things that we don't have language for until we're five or six. And so the changes that we're seeking are not changes of thinking. They're changes of feeling. And especially in this area of this uh, mommy issue, this mother wound, it's something that has to happen inside my lived experience, my my embodied experience, which means what I search for now in recovery is hugs. I, I want a hug. And I've, I've kind of twisted a bunch of guys that I do life with because now at the end of every meeting, it's like everybody goes around and gives the hugs because there's this desire amongst these men to feel safe with one another and be vulnerable in, in our culture. You know, uh, if you hug a guy in public, whatever, I, I'm glad that that's changing. Um, but I need that in my body. And it's like all those touches that I didn't get when I was one, two, five, eight, ten, eleven. 10, 11, I need them. I, I need them. And I'm, and I'm trying to add them back uh, moment by moment, day by day with safe people. And, and I'll even say this. Um, I haven't found this attunement in my marriage. Uh, my wife is attuned to me. She sees me. She's very curious. But I don't. I don't think finding a romantic partner who can take the place of a broken mother is ever going to work, because that's a hole that just can't be filled in the heart of a human being. Yeah. So the other part of the equation here, in terms of you're talking about he, what does healing look like? Where do we go when healing these mommy wounds? Well, the first thing you do is you have to engage your story. You have to go back and be curious about. What was my relationship with my mother like? What do I remember in terms of nurture or not, or a sense of not being seen or not? And, and the stories that I do remember then making those deductions, and then also being curious about when do I feel most triggered now? Uh, what are those emotional occurrences in relationship that cause me to want to go to kind of my unwanted behavior that's trigger? Think about the word trigger. Trigger is simply hitting on some wound in the past. So there's, there's, a, there's something in my current struggle that points me back to go, hey, be curious about that. But Scott, I, I, and, and I'm, I'm feeling like I'm going against brand when I say this. In this particular issue, there's sometimes a story points me in a direction, but if I keep just seeking stories, missing the point. Agree. I, I'm getting, I need to get to a place where I just sit in the sadness and grief and connect with individuals and groups of people who can in my body help me feel the nurture and care and play. I mean, one of the most healing experiences that we can have with other people as adults is to laugh together, is to tell jokes and to go out and do activities together with our bodies and, and, feel the, the joy, the excitement, the adventure in my physical self, because those are pieces of my upbringing that I didn't get. 
And so it's, it's kind of a both and yes, I want to do my story work, but there's a point. And if I'm going to say this really quickly, so you don't think that you can just, Oh, I told my story once that doing my story work is the intellectual work. What needs to happen afterwards is taking that story and letting it sit and letting it soak in. And what do I truly need as I look back at what I didn't get after I've told my story and do that work and allow it to soak in. Yeah. And I'll come at it from this direction. Maybe this is another way to think about it is we don't do story work necessarily to comprehend what we were doing. We do it to feel the feelings that we don't want to feel. Can you say that one more time? Because that needs to be repeated. We, we don't do our story work necessarily to comprehend why we're doing the things we're doing, although that's helpful. But we have to do it to feel the feelings that we're not willing to feel. And so much of what we're not willing to feel is grief over the losses that we've experienced. You're, to your point, you are never going to get the attunement from your wife or any other human being that you didn't get from your mother. There was damage done to you that will remain for the rest of your life. And that needs to be grieved. When you have a shameful experience, you need to sit in the shame. But here's the key, not alone, with other people. You need to have your pain witnessed and be with others. And in that process of feeling your feelings in the place where you're seen by others, you can heal. And this is what I tell guys, you have to be willing to feel to heal. Yeah. Remember that. That is the whole point of everything that we're doing. And again, I, I, I want to go back and just tweak something that you said. Doing story work, knowing what happened is helpful. I think it's progress. I'm not sure how helpful it is in the long run, because if I don't continue beyond that, I really haven't been helped. Yeah, right. I, I, I need to get to what you just said, get those feelings out and begin to grieve and begin to emote. I mean, the most powerful experiences of healings that, that I've witnessed are when a guy got out of his head and just, uh, just let it all pour out. And it was sometimes tears, sometimes screaming, sometimes silence, sometimes just being, uh, just sitting there and, and feeling the weight of what he's never felt free to feel and understandably so because there wasn't a safe place for him to feel it. And so when we talk about this work, guys, it's a both and. We're grateful to share with you our experiences and our engagement with sexual arousal and story and all the things that we do. But ultimately, the work that has to be done is interpersonal. We have to be with safe people who can help us redeem and change the relationships that we didn't get when we were younger, to become human beings that see us in a way that our mama didn't, to become brothers who can hold us in a way that my, our mother struggled to do, to be friends who can listen and play and interact in a way that our, our mother was overwhelmed in. And she, she didn't have the capacity to do that all the time. And we need more of that now. And, and I like what you say, Chris, we, we can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps when you don't have any bootstraps. Your mama didn't give you no boots, man. So you got to do this <laughs> with some other guys who can pull your bootstraps up for you. 
until yeah. you believe, until you start yes. to fill those bootstraps. Yes. So, fellas, that's it for this episode. And we hope you join us again for another episode of We Got Balls. And so do you guys. Take care. Bye. Don't forget to subscribe for more episodes. You can connect with Chris at PornFreeMasculinity.com and with Scott at SuccessfulMen.com.